You are listening to Talking Up, an interview show dedicated to authors, journalists, and writers working on issues of social justice, equity, and the systems that make up the nonprofit sector. Guests are talking about their writing and their research, and what drives their work. Listeners will have the opportunity to widen their lens and figure out where we might go from here. Welcome to Talking Up with host Gail Pico, Editor-in-Chief of The Charity Report. David McFarlane, one of Canada's most celebrated writers, has just released his latest book. Likeness, Father's Sons, a Portrait, is told through a portrait of McFarlane by Canadian artist John Hartman, set against the backdrop of Hamilton, Ontario, where McFarlane grew up. The painting, measuring five feet by five and a half feet, ends up in McFarlane's living room. As it looms over the room and rivets his gaze, McFarland's mind explores his past, growing up in the boom times of Hamilton in the 60s, his present, dominated by his son's treatment for leukemia, and his future, dare he think of it at all, as an achingly sad prospect as his son gets progressively sicker. We're thrilled to have David McFarland speaking with us today from his home in downtown Toronto. So, hi, David. Welcome to Talking Up. It's really lovely to see you. It's been a long time since we've been dropping our kids off at school. I loved Likeness. It's a fabulous book. First, I just want to establish how you ended up with being painted by John Hartman, number one, and then how that gigantic painting ended up in the living room of your downtown Toronto character home? Uh, Well, um, as it turns out, uh, John was beginning to formulate the idea of writing, uh, of of painting a series of portraits uh, of writers in locations or in front of locations that were, uh, are important to them. Um, I was the first one he did. And so at that stage, it was a kind of idea that was beginning. And uh, so John and I have sort of slightly different versions of, of how this happened. But, but basically, my understanding was that John asked me to give him a guided tour of Hamilton, my corner of Hamilton, where I grew up. Uh, and... Um, which made sense to me because John is, is famous for these um, um, uh, cityscapes that mm-hmm. he does, these very beautiful, big portraits of cities from a kind of aerial perspective. Um, and John and I were friends and he knew I was from Hamilton. And so it kind of made sense that, I, that he would ask me to give him a tour. Yeah. Somehow it wasn't clear to me that I was going to be in the painting. Um, John, I think, is probably right. Um, I mean, I take his word over mine on this, that that he was, you know, that he knew all along that I was going to be in it. But nonetheless, when I saw the painting in the Mativier Gallery, I was really surprised by the fact that, A, it was so big, and B, I was um, um, as, you know, as prominent in it as, well, as a, as a head is in a Zoom call, actually. Uh, and... Uh, um, uh, and so I was standing there, uh, a bit shocked and really uncertain what to say. And Nicholas Mativier, 
the owner of the gallery um, and a great friend and ally of John Hartman's and of many other artists mm-hmm. um, came up and was standing beside me. And sort of just because I didn't know what else to say, <laughs> I said, I-, I could write something about this painting. Uh, I guess I was, be- I was Hamilton and my father lived in Hamilton his whole life. His mother lived in Hamilton her, her whole life. And so there were all kinds of reasons why um, it would, this sort of made sense. Uh, but anyway, N- Nicholas Mativier came up and um, listened to me say that I could write something about it. And he said, like, on the spur of the moment, he said, oh, well, we'll lend it to you. Uh, <laughs> and it wasn't it wasn't the next day but i think it was probably 2 days later yeah. his art installers arrived with this enormous painting and it so happened that it hung in our living room for about four and a bit years and that was the period of time in which john was doing the portraits of many other right. writers 41 in total because the show is now touring Right here. So I, I, of course, I had to Google it, right? I had to Google the painting. So I apologize if that kind of ruined it for what your idea of the reader would no, experience no, no. that. But. On the contrary, in fact, in the book on the on the sort of facing page is a, is a zoom, not a zoom, a, um, a link to, right. to the to the painting. No, it was a really interesting di- uh, discussion about uh, including the painting. Um, and and in the end, um, and there are all kinds of reasons why to include it, all kinds of reasons why not to include it. But in the end, I came down um, on the uh, on this reasoning that a great deal of the book talks about living with an actual painting as right. opposed to a reproduction, um, as opposed to a poster, what it's like to live in a room with a real painting. Mm-hmm. And so there was something that seemed a little bit wrong about including a reproduction. And then, of course, you get into, well, how good a reproduction is it going to be? Mm-hmm. Um, and and so in the end, we decided that it was best for the for the painting not to be there. If someone wants to see it, they can, mm-hmm. as you did. Yeah. Um, other people have read it without without looking at the painting at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Um, anyway, it was, it was an interesting discussion. Yeah, I, I'm sure that it was because I um, I can imagine just the physicality of something, and it's five by five and a half feet, something mm-hmm. like that, being delivered into your home. And when I introduced you and I said character home, I kind of meant, I mean, you live in a beautiful older home in downtown Toronto, but the brooms aren't that big. You know, they're 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 meant for their time, and having a painting like like that in your living room, I mean, you would it would be like jumping into the aquarium with the fish. You know, there's not there's not much difference. So, what did you do first when those art installers and they're miraculous in their own way because they hang art so well when they left and you were left there with this painting what what did you do did you go get a cup of tea did you sit in front of it what was your response well in general my response was to well usually a cup of coffee but to to sit in front of it I decided that that was the um luxury that that was afforded to me fact that this painting was in our 
her house. And, um, you know, you don't often get a chance to kind of sit with a painting like that and just spend a lot of time, even a great, 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 great painting, like a masterpiece. You know, maybe you spend five minutes with it and, you know, if you're at the Louvre or the Quai d'Orsay or someplace. So, um, so that was the thing. That was the thing. What is it like to live with a work of art? And um, a work of art really does have a presence and it has a, a vibrancy. John Hartman's painting is a particularly interesting painting. Um, but um, it had to do with that. It had to do with the fact that the painting was interesting. But also it has to do with its own um color rhythm the energy from it like like once that painting goes and i can attest to this because at the end of four and a half years they took it away it is like someone in your family is no longer there that was the kind of energy that 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 thing had Mm -hmm. uh the other thing i want to say about having a painting like that because you're absolutely right it was too big a painting for the room it was like, like it just didn't fit in the room. Uh, and so not everyone who came to our house sort of knew the story of the painting. Right. And that was really interesting to welcome people to you know, a party or something. And they walk into our living room and there's a huge oversized painting of their host. Um, <laughs> <laughs> they clearly... Anyway, that was sort of... It's all gone to David's head. <laughs> The um, your description of the painting and taking, you know, a square inch of the painting and how there's nothing in that square inch, but the kinds of thoughts that uh, it evokes for you, for your growing up, for childhood days, for um, a propensity to to take LSD and let that go where it may. But all of that description and when I finished the book and kind of understood that the painting represented a past and a present and you in the present and you and future, it had a bit of a Dickensian quality to it. You know, the, 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 um, um, the, the Christmas Carol thing. And I mean, one of the things that coincided and I don't know how exactly it coincided was of course, Blake was very, very ill throughout the entirety of this book and um, you read him parts I imagine of what you were writing about the painting when he was in the hospital Um, and what was it like for you what was the process like for you to write Blake into the book and to write his illness into the book Well, I think for me, it was part of grieving. Mm -hmm. Um, I really do think that it was that kind of, uh, you know, the Joan Didion year of magical thinking. Somehow writing the book um, uh, made Blake present in in a way. And I tried, I don't know if I succeeded or not, but I tried to write a book that he would approve of. uh, that was something that was very much in my mind. So mm-hmm. that was a kind of interesting connection to have with him. And the other thing about, you, you know, the time, uh, time, the way time is handled in the book that you, that you mentioned, uh, it is uh, when you lose 
lose a loved one, someone very close to you, um, the past takes on this whole um, other, um, it, it, the past becomes much bigger um, than it used to be. Uh-huh. Um, and so you keep trying to, or I keep trying to incorporate the past into the present in a way, um, because you don't want to lose the memory of someone, the presence of someone, you know, you hold on to them in all kinds of ways. And so that brought to mind this whole issue of, um, of the way that, that we understand or maybe misunderstand time, you know, Michael Pollan and his, um, book how to change your mind which is about psychedelic drugs Mm -hmm. talks about the fact that our minds that we have ordered our minds meaning humans have ordered their minds so that for survival reasons so we figure out the sequence of things we know that if we eat this we're going to this is what's going to happen Mm -hmm. following etc etc um but this is a very much a kind of narrowing of what time is and psychedelic drugs have this famous famously have this quality of expanding time so that you begin to sense of a sense of what it must be like for it to to exist in a kind of multi-dimensional way and so i had this story um the sort of family story of accidentally ending up playing golf with my father when i was on lsd yes it's Um, incredible and, and blake found this a hilarious story he loved hearing this but but the thing that really sort of caught my interest in this story aside from the fact that it was funny and um was that the one thing that i couldn't do i was worried that i wasn't going to be able to play and but i managed to play okay but what i couldn't do is keep track of the score somehow somehow the the sequential ordering of strokes was completely beyond me. Everything else was okay. I could hit the ball. I could walk. I could carry on. But at the end of every hole, my father would say, so what did you shoot? And I'd have literally no idea, like not a clue. And so even if I, even if I said to myself at the beginning of the hole, uh, you got to remember how many right. strokes I would end up getting off on some whole other tangent. And so the inability to hold on to the to the elementary sequence of the strokes of a game of golf felt to me like what time would be like if it was fractured in a way into a kind of multi-dimensional way yeah yeah it's 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 really interesting in a way and it's great i can see why blake loved that story but it's also uh and I, and I found it a very impressive story because you are actually perfecting your swing. You are going through this whole, um, uh, you know, the theory of a golf swing, which many books have been written about. And, and you're, you know, you're really hitting the ball. And then your father, because you can't keep count of, of what you scored, is, looks at you and, 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 and you, I think you say, not unkindly, says are you okay <laughs> um in terms of just the narrative of the book um i was teaching at uh, king's college a couple of weeks ago and we were talking about this book and and the subject of the of the sort of of the of the fragmented time of the narrative came up 
And I made the argument and that I think that's the way we actually do think. I think that a linear narrative is the artificial creation and the, and the way that we do think is in and out of various time zones all the time. As we're having this conversation, you are reflecting on something in the past, you're projecting something in the future. Um, all kinds of elements of time are coming into play. And right. So the, the narrative of the book kind of reflects that, I think. Yeah. And um, and I don't know if you ever saw the movie Her with um, uh, Kevin Klein and Scarlett Johansson voices a Surrey character. Anyway, they, he falls in love with her and she's right, just a voice. Right, right, right? right. And but she's getting more complex as the movie goes through and and, and he's getting jealous. And he he's only she's only checking in with him like every week at the end of the movie. And he says, I know you're seeing other people. I know you're doing stuff for other people. And, and he goes, how many other people? And she answers him, 675,402. <laughs> it's 30 years since The Danger Tree came out. Talk to me about that, if you could. Um, well, I think that that was, um, I guess, in every family, there is a sort of strange... Um, um, plateau period where nothing seems to change for a long time. Mm -hmm. uh, my parents, I was aware of the fact that my parents were old, um, but they, they were healthy. They seemed fine. They were kind of doing their thing. Um, and so during that period of time, it's not so much that my relationship with them changed, but focus changed. So the grandchildren became their focus. And, um, and as I say in the book, my, both my parents actually were, I mean, they were, they were good parents, but they were really good grandparents. Mm -hmm. uh, they kind of really took that role to mm -hmm. heart. Um, and so um, I say in the book that I sort of almost forgot about my father, um, not about my father, but forgot about how he had been when he was a young man, when right. he was a busy physician in the city of Hamilton. Um, and it was only at the end of his life when he was back in a hospital, not as a doctor, but as a patient. Mm -hmm. And I recognized the, the way that he dealt with other doctors and with nurses. And he had a kind of um, professional panache that I'd kind of <laughs> forgotten about. Um, and then of course, after he died, my mother was on her own and that was a sort of lonely period of time for her. So, but everything seemed to be sort of on hold somehow, mm -hmm. I guess, because Blake's illness was sort of on hold and my mother was getting older and that was kind of on hold. So it was this period and I describe it in the book of going back to Hamilton and it feeling like time has stopped right. that going back there I'd have the same my mother's memory was going so we'd have the same conversations we'd watch the same old tv shows uh we'd order the same food so it was like and and that was a relief in a way because in Toronto it there was uh time was very much passing and the yeah. progress of Blake's illness was the measurement by which, you know, everything else was measured. Hartman's work, I mean, aside from his portrait of, of you against the backdrop of, 
of of Hamilton. He, the the the, um, uh, the the rest of the authors and, and writers that he features. It's a great series. He he uh, see oh, I go at Jen. Um, uh, Michael Crummy. I mean, he does a lot of it's. A, it's a really cool, cool show, and 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 it's a great idea. And and I don't know if if this ever this thought ever occurred to you of the of you know during the process of staring at the painting and thinking all of those thoughts that didn't make it into the book. And I'm sure there was lots of them, you know. Um, but. How would you put a portrait of Blake in that context? What place would you put behind him? But what would you put behind Blake, do you think? Well, I think it would have to be downtown Toronto. Um, Blake and Caroline, our daughter, um, you know, they there are other places in the world that they like, love and went to. But But I think on the whole downtown Toronto really is their home. Um, Roughly the Kensington market area. We never get to call ourselves the annex because we're actually south of Bloor street. So, uh, but anyway, um, you were uh, saved. (laughs) um, But they both Blake loved it and Caroline continues to love it. Uh, She's actually been living here with us during COVID. She had been in Brooklyn um, for several years before that. But um, but it, it, the house has always been, um, our house has always been a place where their friends liked to meet um, mm-hmm. because it was, well, I guess comfortable, but also because it was kind of, proximate to where they wanted to go if they wanted to go out dancing at night they were near the clubs etc 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 so blake's cityscape would would probably be this kind of um uh annex uh sub annex kensington market spadina Mm -hmm. uh chinatown um that that part of toronto would be his toronto i think yeah, that's where yeah. he went to school with with your kids, and right. um, so you know that's that was his world. Um, how's the family doing after everything? Well, we're doing you know okay. It's strange. Um, it's a strange absence to have because we were a pretty close close yes. knit family, and we continue to be. But now it's just the three of us, not the four of us. Um, Caroline, our daughter, um, actually made a really beautiful short documentary film, which keeps winning awards at uh, film festivals, which is great. But it it, it is about Blake as well, yeah. but in a sort of strange roundabout way. She was doing a portrait um, of a woman in New York, New York City. Called, uh, her name's Jane Marks, and she's a tour guide, like a... She'll take you on walking historical tours of uh, different parts of New York City. And she's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, but so Caroline was making this film. And in their first interview, Jane starts talking about losing her brother to AIDS um, 30 years ago. Wow. Um, and, but, and she didn't know what had happened to Caroline or what had happened to Caroline's brother. And so there's this moment where Jane talks about 
losing a sibling and how terrible that is and you'll never get over it and then you hear caroline's voice from behind the camera say i know i lost my brother and jane leaps up and, <laughs> and comes around and uh anyway so the film takes this strange not strange but takes this abrupt turn and the, and it becomes about this friendship between caroline and jane who's in her mid-70s um and um and they share this friendship over the of the loss of their brothers wow what's the name of the film will falling forward falling forward okay wow Uh, yeah so we're doing we're doing okay janice my my wife has remained busy um uh with various projects she's a designer and so Mm -hmm. that seems to have carried on so all in all we have we've we haven't had a, we've been lucky, you know, right. pretty, um, yeah. Been okay. I'm so grateful to have you uh, take this time to talk to us today. Um, uh, it's great that you were able to be with us. Uh, oh, it's the been bo- a great pleasure. Thank you. Okay, great. The book is Likeness, Fathers, Sons, and a Portrait by David McFarlane. Thank you again, David. It's such a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Talking Up. The program was produced by Terry Carter with original music from the Fortan Electrosonic Laboratory. Be sure to join us again next week for another inspiring edition And if you're interested in keeping up to date until then, visit us at thecharityreport.com.